Chapters 1 and 2 of The Mill Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mill Mystery by Anna Catherine Green. Chapter 1 The Alarm. I had just come in from the street. I had a letter in my hand. It was for my fellow lodger, a young girl who taught in the high school, and whom I had persuaded to share my room because of her pretty face and quiet ways. She was not at home, and I flung the letter down on the table, where it fell, addressed downwards. I thought no more of it. My mind was too full, my heart too heavy with my own trouble. Going to the window, I leaned my cheek against the pane. Oh, the deep sadness of a solitary woman's life, the sense of helplessness that comes upon her when, every effort made, every possibility sounded, she realizes that the world has no place for her, and that she must either stoop to ask the assistance of friends or starve. I have no words for the misery I felt, for I am a proud woman, and— but no lifting of the curtain that shrouds my past. It has fallen forever, and for you and me and the world, I am simply Constance Sterling, a young woman of twenty-five, without home, relatives, or means of support, having in her pocket seventy-five cents of change, and in her breast a heart like lead. So utterly had every hope vanished in the day's rush of disappointments." How long I stood with my face to the window I cannot say. With eyes dully fixed upon the blank walls of the cottages opposite, I stood oblivious to all about me, till the fading sunlight, or was it some stir in the room behind me, recalled me to myself, and I turned to find my pretty roommate staring at me with a troubled look that for a moment made me forget my own sorrows and anxieties. "'What is it?' I asked, going towards her with an irresistible impulse of sympathy. "'I don't know,' she murmured. "'A sudden pain here,' laying her hand on her heart. I advanced still nearer, but her face, which had been quite pale, turned suddenly rosy, and with a more natural expression she took me by the hand and said, "'But you look more than ill. You look unhappy. Would you mind telling me what worries you?' The gentle tone, the earnest glance of modest yet sincere interest, went to my heart. Clutching her hand convulsively, I burst into tears. "'It is nothing,' said I, "'only my last resource has failed, and I don't know where to get a meal for to-morrow. Not that this is anything in itself,' I hastened to add, my natural pride reasserting itself. "'But the future, the future, what am I to do with my future?' She did not answer at first. A gleam, I can scarcely call it a glow, passed over her face, and her eyes took a faraway look that made them very sweet. Then a little flush stole into her cheek, and, pressing my hand, she said, "'Will you trust it to me for a while?' I must have looked my astonishment, for she hastened to add, "'Your future I have little concern for. With such capabilities as yours you must find work.' "'Why, look at your face!' And she drew me playfully before the glass. "'See the forehead, the mouth, and tell me you read failure there. But your present is what is doubtful, and that I can certainly take care of.' "'But,' I protested with a sensation of warmth in my cheeks, 
the loveliest smile stopped me before i could utter a word more as you would take care of mine she completed if our positions were reversed then without waiting for a further demur on my part she kissed me and as if the sweet embrace had made us sisters at once drew me to a chair and sat down at my feet you know she naively murmured i am almost rich i have five hundred dollars laid up in the bank and i put my hand over her lips i could not help it she was such a frail little thing so white and so ethereal and her poor five hundred had been earned by such weary weary work but that is nothing nothing i said you have a future to provide for too and you are not as strong as i am if you have been more successful she laughed then blushed then laughed again and impulsively cried it is however more than i need to buy a wedding dress with don't you think and as i looked up surprised she flashed out oh it's my secret but i'm going to be married in a month and and then i won't need to count my pennies any more and so i say if you will stay here with me without a care until that day comes you will make me very happy and put me at the same time under a real obligation for i shall want a great many things done as you can readily conceive what did i say what could i say with her sweet blue eyes looking so truthfully into mine but oh you darling girl while my heart filled with tears which only escaped from overflowing my eyes because i would not lessen her innocent joy by a hint of my own secret trouble and who is the happy man i asked at last rising to pull down the curtain across a too inquisitive ray of afternoon sunshine ah the noblest best man in town she breathed with a burst of gentle pride mr b she went no further or if she did i did not hear her for just then a hubbub arose in the street and lifting the window i looked out what is it she cried coming hastily towards me i don't know i returned the people are all rushing in one direction but i cannot see what attracts them come away then she murmured and i saw her hand go to her heart in the way that it did when she first entered the room a half hour before but just then a sudden voice exclaimed below the clergyman it is the clergyman and giving a smothered shriek she grasped me by the arm crying what do they say the clergyman do they say the clergyman yes i answered turning upon her with alarm but she was already at the door can it be i asked myself as i hurriedly followed that it is mr barrows she is going to marry for in the small town of s mr barrows was the only man who could properly be meant by the clergyman for though mr kingston of the baptist church was a worthy man in his way and the congregational minister had an influence with his flock that was not to be despised mr barrows alone of all his fraternity had so won upon the affections and confidence of the people as to merit the appellation of the clergyman if i am right thought i god grant that no harm has come to him and i dashed down the stairs just in time to see the frail form of my roommate flying out of the front door i overtook her at last but where far out of town on that dark and dismal road where the gaunt chimneys of the deserted mill rise from a growth of pine trees but i knew before i reached her what she would find 
knew that her short dream of love was over, and that stretched amongst the weeds which choked the entrance to the old mill lay the dead form of the revered young minister, who, by his precept and example, had won not only the heart of this young maiden, but that of the whole community in which he lived and labored. End of chapter 1 Chapter 2 A Fearful Question my roommate was, as I have intimated, exceedingly frail and unobtrusive in appearance, yet when we came upon this scene, the group of men about the inanimate form of her lover parted involuntarily, as if a spirit had come upon them, though I do not think one of them until that moment had any suspicion of the relations between her and their young pastor. Being close behind her, I pressed forward too, and so it happened that I stood by her side, when her gaze first fell upon her dead lover. Never shall I forget the cry she uttered, or the solemn silence that fell over all, as her hand, rigid and white as that of a ghost's, slowly rose and pointed with awful question at the pallid brow upturned before her. It seemed as if a spell had fallen, enchaining the roughest there from answering, for the truth was terrible, and we knew it else why those dripping locks and heavily soaked garments oozing not with the limpid waters of the stream we could faintly hear gurgling in the distance but with some fearful substance that dyed the forehead blue and left upon the grass a dark stain that floods of rain could scarcely wash away what is it oh what does it mean she faintly gasped shuddering backward with wondering dread as one of those tiny streams of strange blue moisture found its way to her feet still that ominous silence oh i must know she whispered i was his betrothed and her eyes wandered for a moment with a wild appeal upon those about her whereupon a kindly voice spoke up he has been drowned miss the blue and there he hesitated. The blue is from the remains of some old dye that must have been in the bottom of the vat out of which we drew him, another voice went on. The vat, she repeated. The vat? Was he found? In the vat? Yes, miss. And there the silence fell again. It was no wonder, for a man like him, alert, busy, with no time nor inclination for foolish explorations, to have been found drowned in the disused vat of a half-tumble-down old mill on a lonesome and neglected road meant. But what did it mean? What could it mean? The lowered eyes of those around seemed to decline to express even a conjecture. My poor friend, so delicate, so tender, reeled in my arms, in the vat she reiterated again and again as if her mind refused to take in a fact so astounding and unaccountable yes miss and he might never have been discovered volunteered a voice at last over my shoulder if a parcel of school-children hadn't strayed into the mill this afternoon it is a dreadful lonesome spot you see and hush i whispered hush and I pointed to her face, which at these words had changed as if the breath of death had blown across it, and winding my arms still closer about her, I endeavored to lead her away. But I did not know my roommate. Pushing me gently aside, she turned to a stalwart man nearby, whose face seemed to invite confidence, and said, Take me in and show me the vat. He looked at her amazed. So did we. 
"'I must see it,' she said simply. And she herself took the first step towards the mill. There was no alternative but to follow. This we did in terror and pity, for the look with which she led the way was not the look of any common determination, and the power which seemed to force her feeble body on upon its fearful errand was of that strained and unnatural order which might at any moment desert her and lay her a weak and helpless burden at our feet. "'It must be dark by this time down there,' objected the man she had appealed to as he stepped doubtfully forward. But she did not seem to heed. Her eyes were fixed upon the ruined walls before her, rising drear and blank against the pale green evening sky. "'He could have had no errand here,' I heard her murmur. "'How then be drowned here? How? How?' Alas, that was the mystery, dear heart, with which every mind was busy. The door of the mill had fallen down and rotted away years before, so we had no difficulty in entering. But upon crossing the threshold and making for the steps that led below, we found that the growing twilight was anything but favorable to a speedy or even safe advance for the flooring was badly broken in places, and the stairs down which we had to go were not only uneven, but strangely rickety and tottering. But the sprite that led us paused for nothing, and long before I had passed the first step she had reached the bottom one, and was groping her way towards the single gleam of light that infused itself through the otherwise pitchy darkness. "'Be careful, miss, you may fall into the vat yourself!' exclaimed more than one voice behind her but she hurried on, her slight form showing like a spectre against the dim gleam towards which she bent her way, till suddenly she paused, and we saw her standing with clasped hands and bent head, looking down into what? We could readily conjecture. "'She will throw herself in,' whispered a voice. But as, profoundly startled, I was about to hasten forward, she hurriedly turned and came towards us. I have seen it, she quietly said, and glided by us and up the stairs and out of the mill, to where that still form lay in its ghostly quietude upon the sodden grass. For a moment she merely looked at it, then she knelt, and, oblivious to the eyes bent pityingly upon her, kissed the brow and then the cheeks, saying something which I could not hear, but which lent a look of strange peace to her features, that were almost as pallid and set now as his. Then she arose, and, holding out her hand to me, was turning away, when a word uttered by someone, I could not tell whom, stopped her, and froze her, as it were, to the spot. That word was suicide. I think I see her yet, the pale green twilight on her forehead, her lips parted, and her eyes fixed in an incredulous stare. "'Do you mean,' she cried, "'that he deserves any such name as that? "'That his death here was not one of chance or accident? "'Mysterious, if you will, "'but still one that leaves no stigma on his name "'as a man and a clergyman?' "'Indeed, miss,' came in reply, "'we would not like to say. "'Then I say that unless Mr. Barrows was insane, "'he never premeditated a crime of this nature. "'He was too much of a Christian.' and if that does not strike you as good reasoning, he was too happy. 
The last word was uttered so low that if it had not been for the faint flush that flitted into her cheek, it would scarcely have been understood. As it was, the furtive looks of the men about showed that they comprehended all that she would say, and, satisfied with the impression made, she laid her hand on my arm and for the second time turned towards home. End of chapter 2